You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. Uh, like Sarah said, if you're new, we're really glad you're here and glad you're with us. Uh, as you saw in the video, we're in a series right now in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Philippians. It's just a quick note on kind of our preaching philosophy or strategy here at GCC. We say this from time uh, every once in a while, and I think it's important to say we, we believe that the best, most, uh, the best steady diet for the church when it comes to preaching is what's called expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is when we start with the book of the Bible, and then the goal is to expose the truth that's in the Bible. So it would be that or maybe like topical preaching, where we pick topics and preach on those topics. We don't think topical preaching is bad. We just think the main diet for the church should be looking at what does God's word have to say. And so we tackled whole books at a time. Uh, last year, we did a series in the book of Exodus, and we preached through that. We're just wrapping up uh, here in the next couple of weeks a series in Philippians, and then we're going to start a series in the book of Romans uh, in a few more weeks. And so that's, that's if you're new to GCC or if you've been coming for a while and wondering uh, why we do what we do, we, we preach through books of the Bible because we believe that this book is God's word. We believe that it is true, uh, that it is his way of communicating and speaking to us and to the church. And so we want to get the topics that we preach about from, uh, from his word. And so that said, we're in Philippians. Uh, we have one more week after this Sunday in Philippians. Uh, we'll wrap up the book next week. Uh, so turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 4. Rian, er, Rian, <laughs> Ian read the passage earlier. Uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll explore this passage and, and what Paul has to say about contentment. But first, let me open us up in a word of prayer. 
Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you that we have access to truth, that you've revealed yourself to us in a very intimate and personal way. Uh, You did not leave uh, humanity, you did not leave us in the dark about who you are or who we are or what our purpose is uh, or or what we can do to experience salvation and a relationship with you. You've revealed all of that to us through uh, the person of Jesus, your son, and then also through the Bible, your word. And so it's an incredible gift that we have to get to open this book and read from it in a way that we can understand and comprehend. And when we read it, we're reading your words. You're speaking to us through it. And we thank you for that gift. I pray that this morning, that is what would happen, that we would explore your words and that you would use those words to shape us as individuals, but also shape us as a church. Uh, That as we look at the secret to contentment that Paul explains in this passage, God, I pray that you would cultivate in us contentment that you would uproot the discontentment in our hearts, the covetousness and, and, and envy and pride that leads us to think that we deserve more than we have, uh, and help us to be content. Help us to look to Jesus for that. God, I pray that you'd speak through me, that you would, um, yeah, that this message would be clear and compelling and, and bring glory to your name and nothing else. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John D. Rockefeller is widely considered one of the richest Americans in uh, all of history. Uh, At its peak, his net worth was almost 3% of the United States GDP, which is a lot, in 1913. In today's dollars, it's estimated that the peak of his wealth was around $26.6 billion. It's a lot of money. And at one point in his life, someone uh, is said to have asked him, how much money is enough money? When will you get to the point when it is enough? And his uh, response allegedly was, just a little more. And just a little more has become the cry of our culture. And it's not just with money, but with essentially everything that can be marketed or advertised. It's just a little bit more. We're constantly bombarded with messages convincing us that we need just a little bit more to be happy just a little bit more to be satisfied, just a little bit more, and then we will have enough. And it's not just an out there problem. It's not just a problem with Instagram or ads on TV or our news feed. It's a problem inside us as well. It's, an, it's a problem embedded in each of our hearts. We all experience deep discontentment with this life and with the things that we have or don't have. So think about this, think about it this way. How much time do you spend thinking about what your life would be like if you had more money, more food, more freedom, more knowledge, maybe a bigger house, a better car, a better job with better benefits and more vacation time, a more attractive wife or a more attentive husband, more obedient kids or cooler parents. If you lived in a different neighborhood or in a different state, if you were more fit or had more hair, All day long, there's a voice in our hearts crying, just a little bit more, and I will be happy. Just a little bit more, and then I will be content. Just a little bit more, and I will be satisfied. But the satisfaction never comes. Even when we get more money, or a bigger house, or a better job, or a little bit more fit, it only increases our appetite and craving for more. Because just a little bit more never ends up being enough. The problem with our discontentment is not that we don't have enough things. The problem is that we're looking for contentment in the wrong things. That's the irony of our pursuit for contentment in this life, is that the more we try to satisfy our desires with things of this world, the hungrier we get. 
Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan preacher who wrote a book titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it, he says this about our pursuit of contentment. I think it's a really helpful quote. It says this, My brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of this world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he would gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind, and then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. So trying to find contentment in the things of this world would be like trying to fill a hungry stomach with wind. And so if worldly things will never satisfy us, then what will? What is the secret to contentment in this life? And in today's passage, I believe Paul gives us the secret to contentment. And we're going to explore what that is. So let me read Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And we'll we'll take a look at this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So we're, we're, we're starting the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. He begins to close down his letter by thanking them again for the gift that they sent him. So if you remember, uh, we've talked about this previously, but Paul is in prison in Rome. Right now, as he's penning this letter, he's shackled to a Roman guard, and he's in prison for his preaching of the gospel. And the Philippians hear about this, and because of their love for Paul, they send Epaphroditus to him with gifts, financial gifts that are going to help him in his needs. So the Philippians have proven their solidarity with and their love for Paul by generously providing for his needs during his time in prison. And then Paul writes this letter, and he sends it back with Epaphroditus to the Philippians. And now he's rejoicing because they showed their concern for him that was displayed in the gifts they sent him. He says that the Philippians have been concerned for him for a while, but for whatever reason, a reason we're not given, they were unable to show that concern, but they finally had an opportunity. They put their money where their mouth was, and they showed Paul's support by sending him the gifts. And then in verse 11, Paul almost makes this kind of parenthetical statement, this aside about contentment. He doesn't want them to think that he's in this for the money. He doesn't want them to think that he's sitting around waiting for them to send a gift. And if he doesn't get the gift from the Philippians, then he's going to be in trouble. He wants to reassure them that whether or not the gift comes, Paul's going to be okay. So he says in verses 11 and 12, just read it again. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul has seen it all. He's seen the highest of highs. He's seen the lowest of lows. He's seen both hunger and need, abundance and plenty. And in the midst of all of it, all the circumstances he's been in, he's learned the secret to being content. So for Paul, his contentment is not dependent upon his circumstances. Whatever comes his way in life, whether it is a little or a lot, 
he remains content. And if you're maybe thinking that this secret to contentment won't apply to you because Paul can't know the situation you're in right now, Paul certainly can't know the circumstances you face. He doesn't know the kinds of trials that you are in right now. Consider this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, Paul gives a list of all the things that he has endured for the gospel. It says this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, apart from other things, on top of all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So these are some of the lows and the need that Paul has endured that he's speaking of when he says, I know what it is to be brought low. He's also experienced the other side of things. In his missionary journeys, as Paul is planting churches and getting to know people in various towns, he interacts with some very wealthy people who invite him into his home and feed him extravagant meals. And actually, the beginning of the Philippian church is an example of this. If we read in chapter or in the book of Acts, when Paul plants the church in Philippi, one of the first converts in the Philippian church is a woman named Lydia. She's a wealthy businesswoman who is curious about spiritual things. Paul preaches the gospel to her. She comes to know Jesus, and she invites Paul into her home, and he stays there with her for a while as he's starting this church. So Paul knows need and hunger and being brought low. And he also knows what it is to have plenty and to abound and to be brought, uh, brought up and to experience great highs. But he remains content in both of these circumstances because of some secret that he says. Something that he has learned along the way that allows for a deep-seated joy and happiness in life, true contentment despite his circumstances. The abundance that he's experienced isn't the source of his joy, and the need that he has experienced hasn't ruined his joy. And so what is the secret? What's the secret to contentment? How can we endure whatever situation we are in life without constantly saying just a little bit more? First, I actually want to talk about what the secret is not. Because the, Paul, the word that Paul uses here for contentment is a really interesting one. It's the only time that this word is ever used in the New Testament. Paul specifically places it here. It's a word that we know about from other Greek literature because it was regularly, regularly used by the Stoics in Paul's day to refer to a self-sufficiency, a kind of contentment that was achieved uh, by, by having incredible self-control and self-discipline uh, within oneself. The Stoic philosophers in ancient Rome were committed to a kind of contentment or self-sufficiency that came from being detached from the world around them. They strove to eliminate all desires, all emotions, and they put extra emphasis on being so satisfied within oneself that nothing outside of you could phase you. They became wooden and emotionless, unaffected by the things of this world because they had found within themselves everything they needed to live a happy and satisfied life. And this attempt to achieve contentment within yourself is not limited to the ancient Stoics. It's the same message that is proclaimed today, that you have within yourself what you need to be happy. Uh, the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. A few years ago, it brought in over $11 billion. Um, everyone wants to be happy. 
Everyone wants to improve their life. Everyone wants to be content. And so much so that we'll literally pay billions of dollars for books and conference speakers to tell us the 10 steps to a better life, five keys to true happiness, and the three secrets to being fulfilled. Uh, in preparation for this sermon, I just Googled the key to happiness. I read through several of the like, articles that popped up on the first page. And a theme emerged from all these articles. So I pulled some quotes uh, that kind of capture this theme. And I'm going to read them to you. And I will save you $11 billion by giving you the key to happiness right here. OK, ready for it? Here's one quote. No one is responsible for your own happiness but you. If you want to be happy, first you have to choose to be happy. OK, just choose to be happy. The second one, uh, inspired by our Uncle Phil, be happy. Just do it, okay? And then third one, so if you want to feel happy, you just need to act like a happy person. That is, yeah. amen, yeah, yeah. Um, the overwhelming message of the world on the key to happiness, the key to contentment in life is the same as the ancient Stoics. It is within you. It is within me. If I want to be happy, I just need to be happy. Your happiness is dependent upon your ability to make yourself happy. Just do it. Just act happy. Just be content. Muster up the willpower on your own through meditation and a healthy diet and regular exercise and a good book and just figure it out on your own. But obviously, we know this doesn't work. And it doesn't work because, like I said, the self-help industry is an $11 billion industry because we have to keep coming back and paying more money to get more advice on how we can have it within ourselves to be happy. Now, Paul's word for contentment, it carries this individualistic, self-sufficient background, but then he uh, very cleverly flips it on its head when he reveals the true secret to contentment. He's intentionally using a word with a very secular background, but then infusing it with the gospel to change its meaning completely. You see, the secret to contentment is not within us, it's outside of us. The secret of contentment is not in me, it is in Christ. So look at verse 13. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Um, this verse is probably one of the most misquoted or most taken out of context in all of Scripture. On its own, it seems to say that nothing is impossible. As long as we have Jesus, we can do whatever we set our minds to. Uh, in context, that's not at all what this verse means. In context, it means that Paul can endure the circumstances that he just laid out, the highs and lows, the abundance and need, the hunger and plenty, because Christ gives him the strength to do so. It's not saying that Jesus will give you the strength to nail a job interview or hit a home run. It's saying that Jesus will give you the strength to be content when you bomb the job interview and strike out. That's the idea of this verse. I'm sorry if you have it tattooed on you somewhere and you think it means something else. Uh, it's okay. You can get those removed, I think. Um, this is the secret to contentment that Paul has learned. He's in Christ. He is in Christ. What Paul has learned and what we, what we all must learn is that the secret to contentment is in Christ. Another way to say it would be this. If we have everything but Christ, we have nothing. And if we have nothing but Christ, we actually have everything. Say that again. Main point of, I think, this text and this sermon, if you have everything but Christ, you have nothing. And if you have nothing but Christ, you have everything. We were made to be satisfied with something outside of this world. And that thing we were made to be satisfied with is Christ himself. It is not until we have him in all of his glory and beauty and majesty that we will be content. 
Our lives in the meantime will be a futile pursuit of contentment until we find it in Christ. It's because we're in Christ that we can endure highs and lows, hunger and plenty, abundance and need. It's because we're in Christ that we can go through all of life's circumstances, both the good and the bad, and remain content. You notice that Paul says, he, he says twice that he has learned the secret to being content. It, it, it's something that he had to learn. He learned that he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And so there are two aspects to this kind of learning or any kind of learning. There's, it's learning that is both, it's, he, he was taught it, but he also caught it. So there's an intellectual pursuit of learning and also an experiential pursuit. And so learning the secret to contentment in, involves intellectually learning truths about Christ, about the gospel, about the benefits we receive from the gospel that lead to contentment. But then it also involves practicing contentment throughout our lives as we find ourselves in different circumstances. And so I'm going to, sh- so we'll start with the intellectual side of learning with three truths that lead to contentment. So these are three things that are true of us in Christ that allow us to be content in any and all circumstances. And these three things are things that Paul has been talking about all the while throughout Philippians, and we see all over Scripture. So first, the first truth, the first thing that is true about us in Christ that leads to contentment is that we are secure in Christ. So far in Philippians, we've seen that God is bringing our salvation to completion. He is working within us for his good pleasure. He has expressed that dying would actually be a gain for him because that would mean he would get to be with Christ. We saw a couple weeks ago that our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for Jesus to come back, a sure thing, and transform us to be like his glorious body. So we are secure in Christ. There's nothing in this world that can provide the kind of security that Christ can. No amount of money, no amount of friends, No amount of vacation homes or investments can provide the eternal security that only Christ can. And on the flip side, there's nothing in this life that can change the fact that we are eternally secure in Christ. No amount of financial loss, relational fallout, or physical illness can remove the security we have in Christ. The worst possible thing that could happen to any of us is death, which has no hold on the Christian. For those in Christ, death is a comma, not a period. It's a small blip on the eternal screen of our life with God. And so in Christ, we are secure and therefore can be content. The second truth, the second thing that is true of us in Christ is that we are loved in Christ. So far in Philippians, we've seen that Christ Jesus has great affection for his people and that Christ has made us his own. He possesses us. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means a wrath-bearing sacrifice. So God's love is such that he sent his son to bear his wrath and be a sacrifice on the cross on our behalf for our sins. In Christ, you are more loved than you will ever be. You're adopted into his family, accepted by the king, approved of by your heavenly father. When God looks at you, he is not disappointed or discouraged. He is proud and overjoyed. And this love is not a conditional love. It's not one that wavers or changes depending on how lovable we are. It's unconditional. It's steady. It's rooted in God's character and the work of Jesus, not in our actions or attitudes. See, there's no husband or wife, son or daughter, mother or father, friend or relative who can love you in this world like God loves you in Christ. 
and there is no broken relationship, divorce, estranged child, or damaged friendship that takes away your lovability from God. Even if everyone in your life told you that you were unlovable and unwanted, God's love for you would stay the same. His love for you, uh, I'll steal this illustration from Rick, his love for you is like a raging fire. Your sin does not diminish the blaze and your good works doesn't stoke the flames. His love burns hot for eternity because it's fueled by the work that Jesus did on the cross. And so in Christ, we are loved and can be content. The third thing that's true about us in Christ that leads to contentment is that we are righteous in Christ. Righteousness is our right standing before God. And that right standing is only possible if we are morally clean and pure and holy. And if you are in Christ, then this is true of you. Christ's moral perfection has been applied to all of those who believe in him for salvation. His purity, his blamelessness, his sinlessness is now ours and our sin, our blame, our impurity was dealt with on the cross. On the cross of Christ, a great exchange took place, our sin for his righteousness. He took our sin and died because of it, and we take his righteousness and live because of it. And we can't shake this righteousness off of us. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. You are pure. You are blameless. You are righteous. And you will be those things for eternity. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He, is, he was condemned for us. And no amount of sin or disobedience will ever decrease your righteousness. There's no amount of Bible reading, church attendance, generosity, or good deeds that will make you righteous before God. And there's no amount of sin, disobedience, addiction, transgression, or brokenness in your life that will make you less righteous. Jesus has secured your righteousness because what's his is ours. So in Christ, we are righteous and therefore can be content. Now, these things are all true of us in Christ because of what Christ went through on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus gave up security. He gave up the love of the Father for a moment. He gave up his own righteousness on the cross. He experienced death so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced the Father turn his face away so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced the judgment for sin and unrighteousness so that we wouldn't have to. And because of him, because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf, we now have eternal security, unconditional love, and pure spotless righteousness. And knowing these truths and believing them are essential for learning contentment. But then practicing contentment in our everyday life is essential as well. And so, if the news you get back from the doctor is good news, rejoice and know that Jesus is better than good health. But if the news is bad, rejoice because Jesus is enough when our bodies fail us. If you get the job that you want, rejoice and know that Jesus is better than your dream job. But if you don't get the job, rejoice because Jesus is enough when you're out of work or unsatisfied with work. If the girl says yes, rejoice, knowing Jesus is better than a girlfriend or a fiancé. But if she says no, you can rejoice because Jesus is enough when you lack the companionship you desire. If your husband is emotionally present and attentive to your needs, rejoice, knowing that Jesus is better than a good husband. But if he is distant and distracted, you can also rejoice because Jesus is enough when your husband isn't. If your financial investment works out, or you save a bunch of money, or you get your dream home in the nice part of town, or you can finally afford the car that you've always wanted, rejoice, but know that Jesus is better and longer lasting than any money or possessions you'll ever have. And if you lose all your money, don't get the house and go through life poorer than those around you. 
can also rejoice because Jesus is enough. If your kids are well-behaved and obedient and make you proud, rejoice. Jesus is better than good kids. If your kids are misbehaved and disobedient and constantly frustrate you, rejoice because Jesus is enough when we're at our wit's end as parents. Regardless of our circumstances in life, both the highs and the lows, the hunger and plenty, the abundance and need, we can be content because of Christ. Jesus is better than the best that this world has to offer, and he is enough when everything in this world slips through our fingers. You can have everything in this world, but if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And you can have nothing in this world, but if you have Jesus, you have everything. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Alexander the Great. You don't get a name, the Great, without people knowing about you. He became king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedon when he was 20 years old. And by the age of 30, he had established one of the largest empires in human history. Uh, he led the most successful military conquest we've ever known, uh, securing an empire that stretched from Greece all the way to northwestern India. Alexander never lost a battle, and throughout his reign as king, amassed tremendous amounts of wealth and treasure, treasures from around the known world. Alexander the Great had everything. He had power, fame, and fortune. And then at the age of 32, he became ill and died shortly after. And while he was on his deathbed, he had three very unique and specific requests uh, for his generals uh, to arrange for his death. The first request is that he wanted the best doctors that they could find to carry his coffin. The second request is that he wanted all the wealth he had accumulated throughout his life and his reign to be scattered on the road leading to the cemetery for his funeral procession. And then third, he wanted to be, to be buried with his hands outside of the coffin empty. And the generals were loyal. They're like, we'll do it, but can you give us a little reason, like, what is going on here? Why do you want us to do these things? And his response was that he wanted the best doctors to carry his coffin to show that even the best doctors in the world have no power to prevent death. He wanted the road to be covered with his wealth and treasures so that everybody knew the material possessions he had accumulated on this earth were going to stay on this earth. And he wanted his hands to be empty outside of the coffin so that everyone knew that we come into this world empty-handed, and we leave it empty-handed. The man who had gained everything in this world left it with nothing. If you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. You see, we can spend our lives pursuing just a little bit more, and we can end up dying with nothing at all. Or we can spend our lives following Jesus. And no matter what circumstances life throws at us, we'll end up with everything. Alexander the Great conquered the world and died empty-handed. Jesus died empty-handed so that we could have eternal life. Augustine once said in a prayer, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. If you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to live and die and rise from the grave on our behalf. Thank you that there are, are, are things that are true about us by being in Christ that give us the strength to endure whatever life throws at us. I know in a room like this, there are a, a variety of things that people bring in with them. Illnesses and sicknesses, uh, broken relationships, frustrations, sadness, uh, failing marriages, um, frustrating children, work issues. There's so much that we can bring to the table God, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us of the gospel, reveal your glory to us in it, and then help us to be content in all situations. It is only 
through Christ. It's only in Christ that we have the strength to endure whatever life is gonna throw at us until we see you face to face. And so help us to accept and, and live in that strength that you provide. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.